Welcome and do we have a treat for you. We got to sit down and speak with Sean Dietrich, nicknamed Sean of the South. He is an American writer of books and newspaper columns. His focus is on the Southern United States and its people. Clearly somebody we wanted to talk to. But Dietrich was born in Missouri and after his father's suicide when he was 12, he moved with his family to Walton County, Florida at the age of 14. He dropped out of school and worked construction and other jobs, then became a professional musician. After going back to school, he discovered writing. And that going back to school, y'all, is community college that he did as an adult because he really wanted to persevere and figure out how he could get better at his writing. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know where I first heard of Sean of the South, and that's what I had heard of him as. Not, I couldn't have told you his last name right away. Me too. Um, but I, at least two years ago, maybe three years ago, because how long have we been doing the podcast? Two and a half. Okay. Yeah. So it was before that. Yeah. I had off and on read his blog. Yeah. And I loved his writing style with the blog. Um, you know, certain subjects he spoke of caught my attention. And so I would read the full thing. Mm-hmm. I can't say I've read it every day by any stretch of the imagination, but it's so good. It is so good. You, If you subscribe to it, it will eat, you know, you can get an email daily. And I will find that I'll be going through emails and I think y'all are probably the same. You're just trying to clear that inbox out and I'll get to his and I'm like, oh, I don't have time to read that right now. Or but what's the I might subject? come back to that or I'll read a couple of sentences and boom, here I go. I'm hooked in. Uh-huh. Didn't even have any intention to read. He is such a good writer. And I love his voice. Like I just, even when you told me we were going to get to do this interview, I had a little bit of nervous energy, like a good nervous sure. energy. Yeah. But just thinking, oh, that voice is going to be talking to us. Yeah. yeah. That voice I've listened to is so, going to be directed at us. Like, this is a little, in, you know, nerve-wracking. It's so distinctive, too. And so, so it's on point for yeah. being Southern. So. Yes. And if you are following us on Instagram at Steel Magnolias Podcast, the book that we discussed today, The Incredible Winston Brown, is one that we are giving away this week. So That's right. So make sure and go and enter that And let's just go ahead and jump into it. Meet you at the table. I'm Lainey. And I'm Laura Beth. And we are Steel Magnolias. The strength of steel with the grace of a magnolia. We are here to have uplifting conversations about life in the South. And we've got plenty of room at our table. So pull up a chair. All right. Well, we are here sort of face-to-face, but only through (laughs) technology are we face-to-face here with the incredible Sean Dietrich, also known as Sean of the South. Sean, you are described as a columnist, a novelist, a podcast host, among other things, and we are going to touch on all of those things, but we also just want to make sure that everyone knows that you are a true Southerner. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm, I'm just uh, sorry that you've had to sink so low to have somebody like me on your show. Oh, stop. <laughs> not true, not true. I think we already have uh, many of our listeners that we we gave a heads up that we'd be talking to you that we're pretty excited about this episode. So we are here to talk to you today about your new book that you released last month, The Incredible Winston Brown. 
thankful to your publisher that went ahead and sent us an advanced copy. I'm a super slow reader, so it took me quite a long time <laughs> to finish it. Not that it was a long novel. It was a perfectly uh, sort of paced novel, but I'm, I'm a slow reader and not ashamed to say it. So um, well, it took me a long time to write it. I'm a slow writer, so we're in good company. <laughs> well, well, so so go ahead and start telling us about it. How long did it take you to write it? And just where was all the inspiration behind it? Well, uh, I'm normally a lot faster at writing than I was with this one because uh, we were spending about 80% of our year on the road uh, doing live events. I, I don't know how I got into telling stories live. It kind of was a, a, a accident and I've never set out to do it and certainly don't really feel like I should be doing it. Uh, once you hear me do it live, you'll probably feel the same way. But we were always going, always traveling. And uh, I was writing a novel in the passenger seat of our van when my wife would drive. And the novel became a escape for me because it's based in my home in the Panhandle of Florida. So uh, traveling and living on the road and also for me maintaining my daily column is really an exercise in insanity. You're never in the same place. Uh, you're always in a different hotel room. You're always eating rubberized eggs that taste like plastic. And you're, you know, you're always confronted with some new development in, in a car that you just didn't think you could ever endure, such as, you know, where do we go to the bathroom? It's rush hour traffic and I'm in the middle of Tennessee. Where do I go to the bathroom? So that was the, that was the environment I wrote my novel in. Uh, I would escape in my mind to Northwest Florida, of, to the Northwest Florida of my youth. And it was such a wonderful, for me, therapeutic experience to see the characters that I grew up with who are in this book. They're, they're, everyone in my family is kind of represented or everybody in my life. It was very fun for me to revisit that and see my friends. Uh, I don't know of any other way to put it. So that's how the book came to be. And uh, God bless my editor, Jocelyn, who accepted the manuscript after, you know, not being nine years too late. <laughs> but uh, it was a fun, fun book. Well, okay, so you've already sort of touched on another piece of the story that I wanted to ask you about. There are lines in this book that are familiar to me because Lainey and I also read your autobiography that came out last fall, which is called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? So good. Yes, highly recommend that. Um, but the there was some lines in this new novel that were familiar because I knew your story from reading that. And I just wondered, like, how much of your own journey do you typically put into your fiction novels? Oh, I mean, that's the basis. That's kind of like the, uh, the concrete that I build, construct the house on. For me, everybody's got a different uh, way of approaching it. But for me, when I approach fiction, just character, just taking character, uh, the, the subject of characters, uh, characters, I can't write about somebody I don't know, but I can write about people I know. If I can find my mama, and I can write about her. And this is what she would say, you know, and this is how, well, what if mother were having a conversation with so-and-so? So characters immediately, that's how I drive my stories. And then experiences that I have gone through are things that I could more adequately 
articulate. So I, I, I do draw from them. And often I find that I'm a lot more free to voice my own personal feelings about things I've gone through mm-hmm. when it's happening to some third character, some third party character. It's way less personal. So it's very therapeutic for me. Uh, the char- main character, Winston Brown, just speaking on how I draw from my life, uh, loosely based on my grandmother, not my grandfather, uh, and who was a faithful smoker of Winston cigarettes. Uh, so this is this is where the name came from. <laughs> Great. I could tell you've been around some smokers. That's sort of, that's a familiar experience for sure in our uh, our upbringing as well, because there are smokers galore in this story. But if you've lived in this area of the country for very long, um, especially through decades past, that was, a, that was very much a part of culture. And uh, one of my main, mem- well, the last memory anybody has of my grandmother, uh, is her being on a ventilator and tapping two fingers to her mouth, asking my mother, I, I need a cigarette. So uh, that's always stuck with me. And and that's, anyway, that's just one area. Mm-hmm. And yet she was a woman who never missed Billy Graham. I mean, we would sit there on the sofa and I would sit between my grandmother and the console television because I was my grandmother's channel changer. And she would tell me to either turn up, you know, turn it up or, or sing along when George Beverly Shea would come on the screen and she could sing every word to just as I am and never drop that cigarette out the corner of her mouth. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a special place in my heart for Billy Graham. I accepted Jesus at a crusade in Nashville when really? I was a little girl. Yeah. No well, you got a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Where was it? Um, it was actually here in Nashville. Um, I think it was at Vanderbilt's campus. I can't remember exactly. I was like eight or nine years old. So yeah, it would have been because that would have been the only stadium that we would have had at that yeah. time. Yeah. So I cried when he passed. I oh. cried when he passed away. That was a rough day. Yeah. Yeah, but I sure did enjoy getting to see his funeral. I felt like they did a really, really good job honoring him, like for the whole week. Yes, it was. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe he was the, wasn't he the first civilian that had ever had his body lay in the Capitol? I believe that's I think so. I think that's right. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. I just love all the information that was coming out about him after he passed. Uh, yeah. Someone told me who knew him said, did you know, Sean, that as soon as he started making more of a name for himself on a national level, he hired a third party accountant to manage his funds and he set his salary at the, at the lowest, lowest preacher level and said, whatever happens, don't give me a raise. And uh-huh. I don't know if that's true, but they said that he lived his life as a country preacher salary, even though he had this national name. I just, that's so impressive. I don't know if it's true. Hope it's true. Wow. I hope that's true too. And his coffin was made by, uh, it was just a simple wood box that was made by um, some prisoners. I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty awesome too. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I felt like when, and I didn't know we were going to get on this topic, obviously, but I felt like when um, when he did pass, whether it be through social media or just in conversations, everybody had a Billy Graham story. It seemed like, you know, I mean, 
it, he really yeah. did touch so many lives yeah. and um not to draw too much of a, a comparison but that is kind of some of your your storyline in this novel is Winston Brown touched so many more lives I believe was the one of the points you were trying to get across than he ever would have ever imagined well if uh, if we stay on this thread a little bit uh, ironically right after I finished or yeah, I guess I finished the manuscript of that book and I had submitted it. We were in the car on the way to, I believe it was either Palatka, Florida or Lake City, Florida to do the show. And in the book line afterward, after we did the show, was this little old man who was coming to see me. He had a plaid shirt on, big old belt buckle, tight jeans. And here I have just written this book based in Florida and this guy could be in it. So he gets through the line and we're, we're hugging and he's got his young, young son with us and he says uh, the young son says this is my dad his dad baptized billy graham a few miles up the road and i just came unglued he was just a, billy graham was baptized in uh, palatka florida and Whoa. so i drove by after we were done i visited the church uh i, I I looked in the windows. I, I walked around at this big old cemetery nearby, live oak trees with the moss hanging. That is much, that's the feeling that I certainly hope to catch in my novel, uh, Old Florida. And yes, I wanted to have my characters, I wanted to have uh, people in my book be so painfully common and yet so impacting in a very, very subtle way. That definitely came across. And one of the other <laughs> things that came across is just the humor that Southerners have in our dialect, in our little <laughs> sort of side comments that we make, our uh, kind of our Southernisms. And you yeah. have quite a few in this book. I wrote down a, a, some of the ones I loved the best that I had not heard before were um, one of the guys had food on a plate stacked so high it had its own climate. And um, also loved, if you can fog up a mirror, you can dance. So I just wondered, you know, are these just, do these just cut, roll off of your tongue when you're writing? Do these just sort of like swell up in your mind and this is how you think? Or do you keep like a running list of as you meet more Southerners, like that's a good one, I need to write that in sometime. I am a, uh, a collector of old, I guess what you call them colloquialisms or euphemisms. I, I, am, I collect them. I listen for them. You can hear great ones from old people. Just one of the ones I heard just recently. I mean, I've heard a few this week that I could just recall. Like one was, he was madder than a stepped on snake. Mm -hmm. uh, I heard one last night uh, or yesterday. I was, we were in Pensacola and if I could remember, it was good. It was, uh, well, I, regardless, I do. I keep them in my head. I've got a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, I know which one it was. It was, it's so hot outside. The trees are bribing the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> there, I love things like that. They're so visual. Uh, yeah. So I've always been very interested in why we talk the way we do, and and, and the humor is important to me. I feel like uh, anything you have to say, whether it be in conversation, whether it be from a from a orator's position, if you're speaking to many people. If you're just telling a story to your children, 
if you don't take yourself seriously, they will. And, and I feel like the less serious you make yourself out to be, the more received you're going to be uh, by other people because it just you're, it diffuses everybody. And I love humor. That's why I love so humor. So good. Yeah. Hmm. That's really I good. need more of that. That's My really good. Life. Yeah. Well, we love your, you seem to have a very glass half full on life that's at least what I take out from your readings how do you keep your lens of life seeing the good well if you've been exposed to my first book which you know that was a I'm sorry about that for y'all but it was definitely (laughs) it talks about the first half of my life which was definitely not a glass half full thing as a matter of fact I was the opposite and people in my family were the opposite. We were, the glass wasn't half empty. It wasn't half full. The glass was just full of fertilizer. So we were totally not happy somewhere around my twenties. When I met the brunette who shares my life with me now, uh, who we lovingly refer to as the math teacher because she was, she's a retired certified math teacher, also a retired chef. She's just got no problem being an overachiever. She met me and our relationship changed me. It changed the perspective that I, that I have on life. She has unlimited childhood optimism mm. inside her. And it's a skill I found. It's not, it's not something, I mean, I'm sure people are born with it. Uh, that just those people weren't me. And my wife, however, has cultivated this skill and passed it along to me. And I've tried to be her student, (laughs) both in math and in that. Uh, And so she just softly comes along sometimes and reminds me not to complain, reminds me to stop grumbling. And she reminds me uh, not to be, you know, to take life too seriously. One of her favorite phrases is, tomorrow's a day with no mistakes. And I love that. Hmm. That's good. I'm thinking about God's perspective of the two becoming one when you get married. Mm -hmm. So maybe her glass full kind of balanced you out and now Mm -hmm. she helps keep that lens. Mm -hmm. That's good. She did. She, as a matter of fact, when we met, she, I played piano in a Baptist church and she came up to me uh, during, you know, after our first initial meetings and she pretty much had to pull me out of my shell. I, I was just gonna, I wasn't really gonna, <laughs> I don't really know. I don't want to say that I, I wasn't gonna chase her. Uh, I wasn't gonna respond the way that needed to respond for a relationship to work. Mm-hmm. She knew that she had to muscle that load, <laughs> God bless her. Uh, so she did. And, oh, I needed that. I could have never, I would have never, I'm just not the kind of aggressive uh, guy to go after mm-hmm. uh, woman she she had no problem just being forthcoming and she's the best thing ever happened to me so uh, my my optimism comes from Jamie all right well and I think it's important for people to read your autobiography because you know and again it's called will the circle be unbroken but 
I think it would be easy for people to read your blog or other stories and go, well, this guy's got like just the rose colored glasses, you know, like he must have had it really good. And I think it's so testimonial. Yes. What you just described in, in you actually had it quite the opposite. And so your glass half full and optimism is just a real, a real testimony of, yeah, of, of how we can choose to be different. So. It, absolutely. I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, I get a lot of messages, uh, emails every day from, from column or from blog readers, whatever it's called. And uh, I get a lot of that from people saying, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, this world is not the way you, you paint it. It's not that nice. People aren't that good. Well, and maybe they're from their perspective, that's true. But I'd never forget reading a, a book about Norman Rockwell. And Norma Rockwell said, uh, I don't paint, I don't paint fiction. I paint the world the way that I wish it were. Mm-hmm. I liked that. Yeah. You know? That's good. Really good. Well, I want to know what does a typical day look like for you? How much do you write? This blog coming out daily just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I, I am a slave to the keyboard, that is for sure. I wake up at around six-ish. I go into the kitchen. I, I stagger past my dogs who are waiting for me. They sleep out in the living room. We make coffee in our 1948 porcelain percolator because it just tastes better that way. And then as soon as that's done, I go into my little office and I start to write around 6.15, 6.20. And I emerge around noon <laughs> like a zombie. And that's usually, that's the, that's that first half of my day is the pro- a project. That's a, a book that I'm working on or, or a magazine article that needs to be uh, on time. Then I get my eyes uncrossed. I eat a little breakfast <laughs> and I, I let the dogs jump on me. And I go for a walk. I, I walk every day or, or go out for a just a jaunt. We live in we live in a place that used to be the country, but now it's not. There's a Walmart not too far away from us, so that's wonderful. I get to pass all sorts of people who have suicidal driving tendencies. And then I come back home and I write for a few more hours, and then I polish and work until I post uh, my blog post uh, for the day at night, and I wake up and I do it all over again. And I will probably live to the ripe old age of fifty. And it's tiring. I, I've just completed, I believe, I think, I think I'm telling you right. It was the, my 23, 2317th column that, which, oh. which is enough. My wife figured out to fill 45, 50,000 word books. Oh my goodness. And then, and those are just your columns or your blogs. Cause you, this, this novel we're talking about, this is, is this your 13th novel? This is my uh, 13th book. book. Okay. Both okay. nonfiction and fiction. Okay. Uh, but yeah, those are just the columns. Wow. Goodness. Well, I'm just impulsive. That's all it boils down to. I've just got a problem. <laughs> well, you already mentioned that writing is therapeutic for you. Any other purpose that it serves for you? Yes, uh, it, it helps me find language to describe things that I would probably not, not otherwise even be aware of underneath okay. the surface. 
because of the way that I write, uh, you, you kind of just, for me, you turn on the faucet. You don't really have to, uh, there's really not a whole lot of preliminary work that goes into it, especially if I'm writing about people. I've got the conversation in my head. I've got the information that we've talked about. Now it's a matter of, you you know, turn on the, the writing faucet. And then that leads you, uh, me, uh, to different areas of, of emotion and thoughts and minor philosophies that I never knew that I had. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's helped me add language and names to feelings of of sadness and angst and fear that I didn't know was there. And it's helped me get through that because once I can name it, I kind of feel like, well, now I can see it. Yeah. And so that's another way. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, and that, I mean, you, you are making yourself walk through some vulnerable places too, in order to do that. Not some, a lot. So I just kind of, I wondered just sort of what would you just say are then the difficult side of writing? What would you say that would be? What would I say the difficult part of, of writing altogether is or difficult mm-hmm. part of walking through those hard places? No, okay, just, just of writing in general. Uh, well, you're digging a ditch. You're just working. I mean, you're getting out there with a shovel and shoving it into the dirt. And that is work and it's sweaty and it's hard and you're confronted immediately with self-doubt there's always I don't care what a famous writer or somebody who has been in this for a long time will tell you I don't believe them if they say it's not hard if they don't say if they say that it doesn't uh, well up feelings of inadequacy within them I don't believe it for me there's always the underlying phrase underneath the whole thing that I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want to read this why in God's name am I doing this? And you find yourself asking heaven, why am I doing this? What, what, why? And sometimes you can't answer that why. And then you just find yourself spending a lot of time looking in the mirror with very, very baggy eyes and feelings of self-loathing. That's where it's really good to have, like I said, the nice teacher who can (laughs) remind you he always tells me, just trust your gut, trust your gut. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. that's one of the hardest parts for me. Uh, another part, another really tough part of writing is you write for people to consume it, which people are not in a good place right now uh, mm-hmm. in, Mar- in America by and large. So no matter what I write, I always get emails from people who they don't have great things to say and it's not even always about my writing it's just they need somebody to to throw a spear at yeah and at first I wouldn't have thought that would have bothered me but it does it really it really gets to you after a while and it can be the littlest thing Uh, so when you put yourself out there as a writer you're definitely a target and so uh, sadly in America right now there's a there's a vocalization freedom for vocalization uh <laughs> people who are dissatisfied with you like we've yeah. never had before and i get i think i get 50 percent of them mm. well they're dissatisfied whether or not it's with you you're just the the person that's easy target. to target yeah. so and i do yeah. hope that you're hearing a lot more positive than negative oh yeah oh yes i i shouldn't focus on that uh too hard yes i hear i have some i have 
a handful of people who are so beautiful. They've been with me for about eight years of reading my stuff every day, and they write me every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some, a lot of these are in their 80s and 90s. These are people who, I mean, there's a little old lady somewhere in Northwest Florida who reads me on her iPad every day. She's 94, and she always has a little something to say. And I just, mm-hmm. the right. amount of human connection that I've experienced through my writing has, has changed me. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I love in your blog, you often will use like short sentences or even just a one word sometimes. Um, It's so effective. But why did you choose to write like that? Well, uh, when I was in community college, I had a a English professor. She, She was actually a lady who went to my church who was an English professor. And, uh, I, I was interested in writing and told her as much. And she she always gave me this this very conspiratorial look. I don't know how to how to explain it. It was almost like we were in business together, you know, like hmm. she wasn't gonna help me. We were we were kinda in this together, which is which is infectious, you know. I felt so I felt like I had another person invested in me. Hmm. Uh, she, she believed in short sentences. She'd been teaching all her life. She believed in short sentences. And she told me, actually said it like this, Sean, you should just write how you talk. You know, you have a, have a good way of talking. So write how you talk and then clean, up, clean it up. Well, that was kind of profound. And there's a lot of times where in human conversation for rhythm and meter and pacing, it's just subconscious. Yes. We have one or two word replies. So I do. I love to do that. It's, I'm not always good at it, but I, I do try to basically follow her instruction and write in the vocal. Well, it's form. funny because I do feel like I know you and I'm seeing you for the first time today on the screen. <laughs> but yet I feel like I know you. It's yeah. just funny. I'm so. pretty disappointed. I know in, in person. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, Southerners as a, a phrase of, you know, we got our people and we kind of feel like you're, you're one of our people because of the way yeah. you write. Like we just get it. And those short sentences are very effective. Um, I wanted to ask you, what what would you say? I, I, I shudder to say advice because I know you don't consider yourself an advice giver, but what would you wow, say? You <laughs> based on your experience, you mentioned that you studied at community college. What would you say to somebody that's a student of any age, really, even as an adult, because you were uh, in your adult years at community college that, that wants to write, but, but really thinks, no, I can't write. What would you say to somebody in that position? It's simple for me. Uh, writers write. So if you are writing, you are already a writer hmm. by default. So there's no need to doubt yourself. There's no need to wonder whether or not you got it or you don't got it. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're writing. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're a writer. Because the reason I say it this way is because a lot of people are very interested in writing, but they don't write. They know that they want to do it. It's out there somewhere, but they're not doing it yet. Or maybe they might not ever get to it. But then you have a, set, a, a sect of people who they're doing it. And they're not really sure why they're doing it. It's just happening. You know, they sit down, they feel a little inspired, they're writing. And then they look at it, and these people tend to be very critical with themselves and say, ah, am I, am I, is this good enough? Will anybody want to see this? And 
my thoughts on the matter are, and these are not, again, this and 10 cents will buy you a cup of joe. This is what it takes to be a writer. All you've got to do is write. So if you're writing and you love it, you have every right to be here and you deserve to be behind that desk as I do or anybody. And somebody eventually is going to see that. I do believe that because mm -hmm. something is making you right. Mm -hmm. Something otherworldly, probably. So that's, that's my thought. That's good. And what would you say on the flip side for those that are in a teaching position, uh, whether that be, you know, sort of secondary school or professor level, what would you say to those that are in the English literature writing those fields? What would you say to those teachers that would help who want, students? Who want to, be, who want to help students? Mm -hmm. uh, I would definitely, I feel like in, in my time in education as an adult, <laughs> which it took me 11 years to get through and I am not a doctor, but I had a lot of fun at community college and I came across a lot of teachers, many of whom were my age. <laughs> the greatest thing that ever happened to me would be to find a teacher who offered no criticisms. I'm not saying that they didn't help me improve my work. They did not criticize it. They did not criticize me. Criticism is hard. Constructive criticism is almost, to me, a misnomer. Once you criticize somebody, you have immediately elevated yourself and de-elevated them. I feel like encouragement is what brings out beauty. Good teachers in my life, English otherwise, have all seen the good that I could produce and encouraged that. They didn't, they de-emphasized my weaknesses but they didn't criticize them. Now, I likewise, I've had other teachers who criticized, you know, they're very, very big on it. And I just find myself personally just shutting down. Mm -hmm. So uh, encouragement mm -hmm. rather than you know, criticism. That's That's uh, the thing, the reason I say that is because I do meet a lot, a lot of writers and they will unknowingly hand me, you know, send me a piece of paper or say, uh, send me a, a story or hand me a piece of paper and they'll say, criticize this for me, critique it for me. And I want to say, uh, if I do that, you know, I would, I would destroy you mm -hmm. because, which I would never do. But if you, if I really followed through on what you wanted me to do, critiquing you, that would hurt you. Why would I do that? I, that would bring nothing good out of your right. And that would make you go back in your closet and you'd feel very badly about what you just handed in. Mm -hmm. And that's the wrong motive for, for, for bringing beauty into the world. So that's my thought. Any particular writing influences that come to mind for you? Oh, there's a lot. Uh, my first real love affair was with Mark Twain when I was a boy. I loved, I loved everything about him. It was, his world was infectious to me. You know, when I connect with a writer, it's their world that I'm getting into. And, and I loved his world. I just really loved his world. Uh, other writers, I mean, <laughs> this might, this is not really a literary hero, but the guy who wrote Far Side, <laughs> <laughs> Gary Larson, I mean, he could just deliver a laugh in just one sentence, and it was always good. It was always just punchy. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved columnists. Columnists, to me, were heroes because they could deliver the maximum amount, amount of information mm -hmm. in five to 800 words. Mm -hmm. That is a real, 
real hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, you know, Louis Grizzard was a major hero of mine. I had read every book of his by the time I was 14 years old wow. and still have several of them hanging around. I just, just liked him. So it's good. That's good. Well, you know, our namesake is still Magnolias. And as a Southerner, I know you're familiar even with that term beyond just the movie. So um, I'd love to just know sort of what sort of characteristics do you think would well describe a steel magnolia? Mm, what a great question. Well, I've, I have, in my mind, uh, I have said that a woman, a real Southern woman, is a woman with the emotional maturity and the, the mental development enough Mm -hmm. to befriend the village idiot and then marry him. (laughs) (laughs) And that would explain uh, my wife for sure. Uh, There's (laughs) women who know all the attributes described in Proverbs 31, and yet they also are very familiar with the offsides kick rule in national championship football. (laughs) So there's a few requirements there, that's for sure. That is really good. I really like that definition. (laughs) Probably because you fit it, I'm sure. Well, do you have, so you you definitely mentioned your wife as a steel magnolia. Do you have some others that fit that bill in your life? Yes, my mother for sure. My my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law right now is, is 80 years old. She's had RA, rheumatoid arthritis Mm -hmm. for since she was 30, I believe. And it's really, it has, it's been a cross to bear. And right now, currently, hospice is at her place, but she's not terminal, but they help her. Um, and she can't get around, her legs don't work. So she has 24 hour a day caregivers. And we go over there, we're on the schedule sometimes. My, my wife will pick her up, her torso and those legs just dangle and she'll move her from chair to bathroom and, and She'll do all these things for her mother, and I will hear. We have a spare bedroom upstairs where we sleep. I'll be upstairs listening to my wife go through a bathroom moment with her mother, mm-hmm. and it is the most precious thing to me because mm-hmm. it's it's intimate. There's, and I'm not being gross. I'm not even talking about the gross things. I'm talking about two two people who are going through something very hard together. And they're managing to laugh through it. They're managing to have fun with it, which mm-hmm. is just so it defies logic. Well, the interesting thing is my mother-in-law did this same thing for her mother mm-hmm. some years ago. And her mother mm-hmm. did the same thing for her mother. Uh, these are strong women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some characteristics that come to mind when you think of a Southern gentleman? Well, anybody who's not me, <laughs> I, you know, I have some opinion opinions on it. They're always, they're always proved. Uh, I, I spoke with a young man who wrote a, who wrote a story. He was a college student. He was from originally from, I want to say, Arab, Alabama. And he was in Connecticut writing a story about Southern gentlemen. And he interviewed me. And I realized right away after I had, just spewed forth what I thought was good, you know, definitions that 
all of these definitions have stereotypes that were not necessarily true. And so I don't really know how to define one. I can certainly say there's a few characteristics that I believe are without a doubt, uh, maybe required if you, if you put it that way, which is always, always open the door for anyone you would call mama, miss, or ma'am, always. Never let them open their door themselves. It's just one of those things. I see so many young guys walking into public and there'll be a young woman or an older woman walking ahead of them and they'll just back up and let the lady open her door herself. That that astounds me. It, it, I'm not saying I think it's a terrible thing, but it just feels so unnatural mm-hmm. for me. Uh, and then the second thing is, and this is just a personal beef. Um, <laughs> My mother raised me and, and my, my aunt same. they were very ardent about this. Never wear your hat while you eat. Mm-hmm. Always take your hat off indoors, but certainly when you eat, remove that sucker. Okay. And you would be surprised how many people you see out in public in the South, all over the world, but definitely in the South, who wear their hats when they eat. And I always remember Bear Bryant. I was born on Bear Bryant's Liberty Bowl game. I was born in the third quarter while, while Jesse Bendross was kicking the field goal. <laughs> Bear Bryant, when he played in the Astrodome, as soon as he came through that door, he took his hat off. Mm. So enough said. That's right. Good. That's good. <laughs> Those are really great examples. So you are, you, you live down in the panhandle um, and you, but you've traveled all over and um, even outside of the South. So I am just wondering if someone not from the South wanted mm-hmm. to have like a quintessential Southern experience, um, what locations or activities would you encourage them to do? Well, it depends on what they look, they'd be looking for. If they were looking for barbecue, let's just say. To me, one of the quintessential barbecue stops would be Georgiana, Alabama, which is the boyhood home of Hank Williams. His historic home is somewhere down the road. And then there's a little gas station right on the interstate, right where the interstate connects to the rural route, where there's a little tin shed that looks like it's been purchased from a hardware store. And it's called Kendall's Barbecue. And it is a tiny little shack. And there will always be a line of people waiting outside Kendall's Barbecue. If you go to Georgiana, you're going to feel the South. You're going to see Hank Williams. You're going to be in South Alabama where, where there's, there's, there's places there with population 32. Uh, you're going to get good barbecue and you're going to, you're going to feel, uh, you're going to feel what you might not see in the movies. Mm-hmm. If they were looking for something a little more metropolitan, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I was really curious as to where you were going to go with that. Yep. I don't know. Well, I told me, we did a book. I did a book event. I think it was in, in Nashville, actually. And a guy told me something I'll never forget. And I don't know who he was. He said the difference between he said the South, you know, it's not the same. He says, but the difference between South Carolina, where this guy was from and South Alabama, he says, is in South Alabama, they wear boots and jeans and cowboy buckles. In South Carolina, we wear bow ties and horn rim glasses. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, OK, I don't. I don't understand that side of it very well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we live 40 miles from the Alabama line. Okay. 
Well, so do you feel like you feel more Alabaman or Flor Floridian, I guess I should say? That's kind of the reason I wrote the book, uh, the novel, because my particular area, the Panhandle, is is not well represented in many media outlets. We, mm -hmm. You see Alabama, you see that in movies, uh, you see Florida, but you see a different side of Florida. Florida is really a different state. We have several different zones. It's shaped mm -hmm. like a crescent moon. Where I live, you have Alabama. But if you were to travel 100 miles to the east, you have Georgia. If you keep traveling another 200 miles, you have New York City. And if you keep traveling downward, you're just in Cuba. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Totally different. But where we live, we're never sure whether or not we're Alabamans with Florida driver's licenses or Floridians with Alabama accents. Wow. So it's a different, it's a different world. So if somebody has to make you draw the line, is Florida the South or not? The Panhandle is. The Panhandle, the Panhandle is. is. Right. And, and used to belong to Alabama. Mm -hmm. And it should probably out belong to them again, but, yeah. but it didn't work out that way historically. I Growing up here, I never saw, I never saw a Seminoles tag or a University of Florida tag. It was always Auburn or Alabama. There were no other options. Now, I do know a few, you know, defectors who went to Tallahassee, but <laughs> we don't hold it against them. <laughs> well, we have an aunt and uncle in Dothan, and they fly their UT, University of Tennessee flag, mm -hmm. and they're lone in their whole area. <laughs> yeah. So I hear you. Um, okay, so this, this question might make you just gasp, but if you could not live in the South, where would you live? I know <gasps> it's heartbreaking to even consider. Boy, uh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, uh, I don't really know, but one one place my wife and I found ourselves gravitating toward for vacation was out west uh, to to Arizona, like like every other snowbird and geriatric citizen of America, Florida or or, or Arizona. That's all you got. Well. I love it out there. We went out there for her 40th birthday and she, and it was really special. Uh, the colors that we have here in Florida are green and blue. That's really all we got. We, we don't have any seasons, so we don't lose you know, foot, uh, leaves during the, the fall time. So we have just puke green year round. And then we've got blue with the Gulf of Mexico. When you go out West, you've got the complementary colors of green and blue, which are red and orange, which is really ironic. And those are the main colors out there. So it's a nice change. I don't yeah. know. It's dry. Yeah. My nose bleeds. My skin cracks. That's probably not a good place to live. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it's different altitude and it's, yeah, it's hard on your body. <laughs> well, as soon as we came back from our last trip out west, as soon as our plane crossed into the southern territories, the entire fuselage filled with this icky, sticky humidity. And as soon as we landed in Florida in Valparaiso Airport, the door opened and it was smelled like rotten eggs and dead fish. And I walked out and said, I'm home. <laughs> I miss this place. <laughs> and I'm sure your hair and the humidity matched what you smelled inside as well. So, right. well, 
Sean, we so appreciate your time today. We love your glass half full view of life. We do consider you a Southern gentleman and we so appreciate just all of the uplifting content, um, whether it be through your column or through your novels or um, the podcast, all the ways that you communicate out um, to, to the world, I guess I should say. Uh, a recent blog post of yours I did need to mention was on church socials. And so we wanted to go on record, right? The potlucks are coming back. Yes. Hey, yeah. you guys send me an invitation when it happens at your church because I'll be there. Well, Dang. funny enough, they just put me in charge of some gatherings for the church. So I'm bringing back dinner on the grounds here in Franklin. No Tennessee. So yeah. I would, I would pay money to be there. It's going to be. Money. It's going to be a sticky hot mess, but it'll be glory. So, um, well, I wanted to let everybody know in case you hadn't caught it yet. You can find Sean's latest book, The Incredible Winston Brown, anywhere books are sold. It's available now. You can connect with Sean at SeanDietrich.com. We'll put all of these links in our show notes today. And again, Sean, just thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Well, uh, the thank, thanks is all coming from this side of the camera. I appreciate it very much. And peace be with you, Sean. And also with y'all. <laughs> <laughs>